Hello and welcome to The Dialogues, the interview series about people with type 1 diabetes, for people with type 1 diabetes and with people with type 1 diabetes, where we talk to you, your doctors, nurses, nutritionists, CGM experts, entrepreneurs and pretty much anyone with interesting perspectives and insights in the world of type 1 diabetes. Make sure you subscribe and make sure you give us feedback and let us know what you want to know. We're brought to you by Not Just a Patch, the patch designed to keep your CGM stuck on you. Not Just a Patch gives 10% of all profits to support insulin access for all. Visit notjustapatch.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get 10% off your next order. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to what I think is episode four of the dialogues. Uh, I'm really excited for today's chat. We've got a guy called Henrik, who I'll let introduce himself in a second. I'm in Sydney, Australia. I don't think I've mentioned that in previous dialogues, but it's worth mentioning it because we've got guests from all over the world, but um, talking to you from uh, Sydney, Australia. And um, Henrik, welcome. How are you? Uh, thank you. Excited to be here. I am doing great. Uh, I'm unfortunately not in Sydney, Australia. I would wish to be. Uh, I am currently in San Francisco, California, where I live these days, but originally come all the way from Sweden in the very north of Europe. Awesome. I, I think when I think about the places that I've lived, and this isn't diabetes related, but you know, I like a bit of chat, but when I think about the places I've been and lived, Sydney is an amazing city and I feel very lucky to live here. But I have to say, like when I think about similar cities in the world, like San Fran has kind of got a similar vibe in that, you know, lots of water and kind of lots of undulating hills and just a general natural beauty. Um, so it's a great city you live in. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a pretty amazing place to live. Uh, slightly more challenging these days with uh, climate change and wildfires. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic, obviously, but yeah, it has, this state in general has a lot of natural beauty, uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, I moved here in the first place. Yeah, it's an amazing city, and I suppose the similarities overlap even further in that we had a lot of wildfires in uh, Australia, New South Wales in particular, so, you know, six months ago, we were shrouded in smoke here in Sydney, and it sounds like San Fran's in a similar place, so um, hopefully they get that under control, and um, hopefully, uh, Everything's okay with uh, with you and your family over there. Yeah, no, we're we're coping with the situation for sure, and yeah, we have a lot of people that are you know firefighting and so on that are are doing a large amount of work to kind of get this under control. So I'm sure I'm sure like in a few weeks that will be um, we'll do a little bit better. It's scary stuff. Just reflecting on the little chat that we had last week as well, I think it was one of the things that excited me was that one, you're type one diabetic. Two, you've got sort of tech startup um, sort of entrepreneurial flair which I'm, I'm fascinated in as well three you've got the swedish background which i think is you know it's the, the the difference in healthcare systems between sweden and, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit but like it's some of the stuff that i'm really interested in that the polarity between say the, the swedish healthcare system and the u.s healthcare system really interesting stuff so we're going to kind of get into all that stuff which i'm excited for you're a type 1 diabetic as well so do you want to tell us a little bit about your t1d journey yeah, sure. Yeah, no, exactly. I've been uh, type one for about 20 years this year. So I got diagnosed when I was somewhere between 19 and 19 and 20. And yeah, as you say, um, kind of like, you know, my where I am today has really been kind of a joining forces of 
three major things in my life, you know, being from Sweden and then living in the US and just appreciating like how different those systems are and what things we can borrow from kind of more of a Swedish model and roll that out to the US. And obviously being challenged by the disease on my own. And then thirdly, having a very deep interest and experience in technology, building applications and and software and really kind of being able to see like how software can really help, I think both on the care delivery side, but also in the care experience side for patients. So really excited to kind of dig in and, and talk a little bit about that. I got diagnosed when I was 20, when I was yeah. actually in the Navy. Uh, where, where were you at the time? Which country were you living in then? In Sweden. Yeah, I was in the Navy, actually, doing military service. And then we did a routine health checkup. And I'd been feeling pretty under the weather for a number of weeks, but never really figured out what the, what the problem was. And then, you know, they pricked my finger and the doctor was like, oh, my God, OK, this is not good. Cancel, you know, cancel the service. Wow. Uh, and, 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 and rushed me you to the hospital. You can't be in the Navy or the Army if you've got type 1 diabetes? Apparently, there is a rule that you cannot be in the Navy if you're reliant on any type of like medication on a daily basis. Wow. Because I, I think it's too risky if you end up forgetting it or losing it and you have to kind of, you know, it becomes kind of a life and death situation, which I can, you know, understand. Yeah. I mean, we probably won't kind of get into it. It could, it could be construed as being a bit discriminatory, I suppose, but I guess those lines need to be drawn sometimes. Yeah, I guess it was, it was okay. I was pretty devastated actually back then um, yeah, because okay. I had really looking forward to it and had already been there for a number of weeks and then all of a sudden was kicked out and, you know, had nothing to do. So it's pretty, it's pretty de- devastating uh, actually. Maybe fortuitous, you maybe wouldn't be doing what you're doing today had that not been the case. And it's interesting how Diabetes does this for so many people in the kind of, you know, it doesn't end up just being a disease that you have to live with or a condition you have to live with, but it ends up being, you know, in some way contributing to the life that you lead. It actually totally did because one of the first things that I did when I came home from the hospital, I had all of this time on my hands, but really nothing to do. So the first thing I did was really start to get into engineering and writing code and and writing software. And that sort of propelled my career into what it is today. So I'm actually, diabetes plays actually a huge role in in my life overall. Uh, Not only, you know, obviously because, you know, living life as a diabetic is more complicated, but also has kind of helped me in a lot of ways. And one thing I find actually sometimes is that because I, I I have diabetes, type one diabetes, and now I'm working in a diabetes field, you know, so diabetes is my life daily when I'm kind of like, when I, whether I, you know, whether I'm managing it or I'm working in it, do you find you need an escape ever? How do you switch off? Yeah, you know, I was actually, one of the scariest things about starting a company in the, in the kind of healthcare and diabetes space, which we'll get into and talk more about, yeah. was the fact that like, I was sort of attaching, not only, like I didn't only have my own diabetes to think about, but now my kind of also my career would be kind of wrapped up in it. Yeah. So I had some amount of anxiety before deciding that starting a company in the space was a good idea. 
but it actually has turned out to be totally fine. And I think like my escape uh, now is, is really about like finding the absolute balance that I, that I have in terms of knowing I have kind of these kind of safe meals that I know exactly how my body reacts mm-hmm. um, when I eat them. Uh, and when I just need a break, I just stick to those meals and those that or, or a certain type of exercise. So I don't have to like think about, it's almost like my, my body is on, on, it's like completely automated because I, I know how my body will react. So what the, the thinking there is that if you're eating the meals that you know how your body is going to react, that you don't have to worry about what's happening with your blood sugar. So you can kind of switch off. Is that the. Exactly. Where did that, where did that come from? Where did that idea, that thought come from? Yeah. So it actually came from when I discovered CGM. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, Which was when? Sorry. Yeah. So I discovered CGM in 2017. So quite okay. late. Yeah. I had heard about it before, but never really tried it. And uh, my doctor never told me anything about it or anything like that, which I found very strange after I had discovered it. It was actually a patient, another um, person with diabetes that told me like, Hey, Henrik should really try CGM, this CGM thing. It's really amazing. And I was like, yeah. okay, I'll order it and I actually ordered it in Europe to my mom. And then she brought it over when, when she came to visit me and I tried it and I was just like, wow, this is incredible. Like not only do I not have to prick my finger, but also I get so much more information about how my body reacts over 24 hours. And so my career in technology has over the last decade or so been all about product management. Product management is like, we, we kind of sit in between design and engineering and also on the, a little bit on the business side, trying to create products that solve problems. Yeah. And the methodology that a lot of product managers use is you use data to try and learn about a certain behavior that your potential customers have. And then you try and solve that problem with some kind of solution. You run an experiment essentially. And then you look at the data again, and you try to analyze and learn, okay, what happened when I introduced this new solution or this new idea into the mix? And then you kind of refine from there. It's kind of an iterative process. Mm. And with CGM, that was actually the thing, the behavior that was enabled so that I could run an experiment, meaning eat some kind of like meal or some kind of food that I liked eating, observe the uh, result and then tweak my insulin based on on that experiment and then do that enough times to find okay here are the five things that i can eat for breakfast that i know exactly how my body will react to and i did that for breakfast i did that for lunch and i did that for dinner so that i have kind of like a repertoire if you will of things that i know with like like here's roughly how my body will react and that's been tremendously helpful to keep me kind of balanced when I don't have time to think about my, my diabetes yeah. at all. I mean, there's always some amount of uncertainty. Like it's never perfect. There's no perfection, is there really? No. It's like It's like this constant, I kind of think of it like a, a chess game, like a never ending chess game. And like, you never ever achieve perfection, do you? You're always, you're always learning. 
you're always tweaking. I don't think you actually want to get perfection. You know, I guess there probably are. There actually probably are those type one diabetics out there who have managed to get perfection in that their HbA1c is, is as good as a non-diabetic. And I, I don't think I want to be one of those people because I think that like the amount of control and like pedanticness, if that's a word, required is just not. Uh, well, would would mean that I'm living a pretty compromised life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the one of the things that we always talk about at Steady with our endocrinologists and nurses yeah. is not only how good control can you have, but also how much time are you spending on getting that control. And there's kind of like a balance between those two. Because yeah. if you spend every single minute of your life trying to control your diabetes, it's actually very easy, I think, to get to perfect numbers. Yeah. But yeah, sure. <laughs> it's all about finding the balance between those two. Yeah, so like I mean, the life reducing, with no pizza. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, the absolute easiest thing is never just never eat anything. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> we call it time on task. So it's like, how do you balance, how do you reduce the time on task, but also find, you know, reasonably good numbers that lets you live a happy and healthy and long life. And yeah. that's the kind of, I think, key to good control. Yeah. And, I, and I, that, that whole concept of like, well, how you describe the product manager kind of mindset and the iterative process that's enabled more so by CGMs because of information and when I was listening to you say that, it reminded me, I've got an undergraduate in health information management and I've spent, you know, the last 20 or so years working in and around healthcare and technology and, and, and particularly the last few years in, in like informatics, big data consulting roles, previous to the not just the patch stuff. And um, one of the things that when I used to get up and say present to, you know, some hospitals about their data that, you know, if I ever, if the, if the Freestyle Libre ever came to mind, it was always a good way of, of thinking about the power of informatics. You know, and when, and when you go in and you say, well, you should use data to improve, actually, that's all we're talking about with CGMs yeah. is that they give you almost micro information, availability of this information so that you can, you, you can tweak constantly. And it's that it's that it's basically health informatics in action in a bio sense. I really believe in this old cliche, which, uh, which says you can't improve what you can't measure. Yeah, um, so, Drucker. I think Drucker said that. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't know where you are coming from, where you are and where you're going, well, there's no way for you to actually make it better. And that actually ties back to the whole thesis around running an experiment or finding out whether or not the change that you made was positive or negative. And that, that kind of learning behavior, I think is so incredibly powerful. But yeah. as you say, it requires information to be yeah. available at any given time. And I just don't believe that five finger pricks a day is actually enough information yeah. for you to understand what you did yesterday or two weeks ago was net positive or net negative for your numbers, right? Yeah. So I think the CGM kind of opens up a whole new field, a whole new kind of giant opportunity of experimentation 
for people that are fortunate enough to be able to use them continuously. Absolutely. So um, just going back to your type one diabetes journey and um, you didn't immediately jump into a tech role in diabetes. Do you want to just kind of quickly give us your entrepreneur journey? Yeah. So I've been, I'm an actually an engineer uh, by training. I studied com something called computer science, which is, you know, engineering of software. Uh, I did this in Stockholm in Sweden. And then after graduating, I ended up moving to Berlin, Germany, uh, joining a very small company called SoundCloud. I've always been super interested in music and, and, and um, I thought that kind of like music and technology together was a like a really interesting emerging industry. So I, I moved to Berlin and, and then spent about two years working with Eric and Alex, who went to the same school as, as me, who were the two founders of, of SoundCloud. Really fell in love with Berlin as a city. And uh, after leaving SoundCloud in, um, I think it was 2008 or something like that, 2009 maybe, ended up staying and then starting my own company, my first own company with uh, an old friend from, um, from school. And that was kind of my first foray into being a, an, a founder, entrepreneur. The company we started was called Readmill. It was an ebook startup. So kind of doing a similar thing that SoundCloud had done for music, but taking it to ebooks, creating kind of a social platform for, for ebooks. Yeah. Was much harder than we had anticipated. Never compete with Amazon. It's a very complicated player to compete with, especially on their core business, which is ebooks uh, or books in general, I guess. But we managed to build a, a small, very good team out of Berlin. So in 2014, we started conversations with a few companies in the US about potentially uh, acquiring the company. And uh, one of those companies which was uh, Dropbox, big cloud storage company based in San Francisco. And um, we really hit it off. And there were some uh, parts of our technology that, that they were really interested in. And, what we have done on mobile um, in terms of like rendering books and, and a few other things. So we decided to join forces. Um, so in February 2014, we moved the entire team to San Francisco, where I joined the uh, product management team together with yeah a bunch of other people um, from, from my old uh, company. So that just started like a whole new kind of like, you know, career for me in product management. I got to learn a lot of things over the next like three and a half years and in, in working out of uh, San Francisco at the Dropbox headquarters, met a lot of like smart people and yeah, learned a whole lot of things. And then in 2017, after discovering CGM, I was also at kind of my, you know, at the end of my stint at Dropbox and I, I decided to take kind of a, a year off. And that's really when I started to kind of like think more deeply about the problem of care delivery in terms of diabetes and, yeah. and what kind of CGM would unlock in terms of delivering kind of next generation diabetes care. And um, I took about, yeah, a year sabbatical, really started thinking about the problem and then started the company in, 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 uh, in 2018. What a great story, man. What, and what, what amazing experience you had as well. And what amazing cities you've lived in. Very cool. So that, I guess, brings us to your current 
situation at Steady Health. And I want to, uh, you, you kind of, you, the word you mentioned was care delivery. I, I do want to get onto that because it's an area that I'm fascinated in healthcare delivery because I've worked in it most recently. But I'm interested in where you see, where you saw the opportunity, you know, where, where you saw that there was an area or an opportunity for improvement in management of type 1 diabetes. Because I think healthcare is a challenging space in that disruption is hard, right? Because if you think about how medicine works, it's a, changes happen slowly because there's a risk averseness because you're dealing with people's lives. So the whole medical history is built on let's make decisions with really good information that's statistically significant with randomized control trial data so doctors are trained you know doctors who you generally run healthcare are trained to move slowly and only move based on like information that's very very robust and so this is why we see change being so slow in healthcare and there's a reluctance, I suppose, and, and maybe a little less so in the US, because maybe the US has a slightly more entrepreneurial mindset. But I think, you know, Australia, UK tech, it's hard to get a foothold, because the ways of working are so kind of ingrained. So um, I'm curious about like your thoughts on that, and just how, you know, how that impacts, I suppose, the vision that you've got. Yeah, totally. Maybe backing up for the viewers a little bit and just giving yeah. giving kind of like a very high level overview of what we do. So Steady Health that you mentioned, which is the name of the company, is a virtual diabetes clinic that delivers all of our diabetes care or full service endocrinology care virtually. So over telemedicine and over chat, over video and over chat. And we also specialize in CGM meaning that we actually prescribe CGM to every single patient that we have in the clinic and then have a layer of software that helps our clinicians, our endocrinologists and our CDEs to deliver really high quality care, meaning that we can monitor our patients in almost real time and understand much more deeply like where they're coming from, where they are and where they're going so that we can give them the support and the care that they, that they need. And what's so powerful with having data is also that now that everybody has a smartphone, we can also establish a direct communication line between your, your care team, your doctor, your nurse, and yourself, so that you don't have to follow that kind of more static model of like, oh, every you know, quarter you come into your doctor and you say, hey, Here's what's happened in the last three months. Check yeah. in, give me some numbers. But yeah. it can be much more fluid and flexible in terms of, you know, for a couple of months, maybe you don't need any support at all. But then you go through some big life change. You move city, you get married, you get pregnant, and you need a lot of support. And then yeah. we're there to really help and be your coach and provide you with the support and, and the help that you need. So that's kind of steady. Uh, that's kind of steady in a nutshell. Yeah. But let me answer your question, I think, more directly, which is like, what led us to get to that point? I think after discovering CGM, right, I was amazed. I had gone through this iterative process and I had made so much progress on my own care, going from, you know, an A1C of seven, just, you know, for most people, actually pretty good. But what you don't know in an A1C number is that my blood sugar looks like this. Yeah, time lots of 
Yeah, lots of highs, lots of lows. And I was actually feeling not great, like physically, right? Uh, always kind of in reactionary mode, kind of like, oh, I'm low, always, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, sweaty, shaky, all those things. Um, but after getting the CGM, I kind of totally changed it, right? Then my, I think my A1C over three, four, five months kind of changed from seven to, you know, 5.7 or 5.8. And I was just doing great, like just physically feeling great, losing right. weight, much more calm and centered, like all of those things. So naturally I had my upcoming three month visit with my endocrinologist. So I brought all of this progress and I was just like, Hey, okay, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've done. Like, but I also had like a list of questions, like what's happening when I do this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I remember my endocrinologist at the time, she just pushed her chair away from me and was like, whoa, I, I sorry, I can't help you with this. You know, we have about 10 minutes, but do you need a new prescription? Do you like, do you have any, you know, immediate needs that you need covered? Yeah. And I was just like, so perplexed by that. I was like, but wait, isn't this is supposed to be your job, right? This is why I'm paying you. <laughs> but clearly the system wasn't set up for dealing with the type of patient that I was and the amount of data that I had. So I started like kind of, you know, kind of asking a bunch of questions around that to other patients around the world, doctors in the US. And what I found was there was really three problems on the provider side, on the doctor side, that I had not really understood. So the first one was around education. So my doctor had never recommended me a CGM because she simply didn't know that much about it. And she didn't get any training when she was in medical school that had to do with analyzing data. So when she equips someone with the CGM, that just means so much more work for her, works that she doesn't really know how to do. So naturally, she didn't recommend them to people. It's very obvious. The second one was around tooling. So the amount of tools that she has at her disposal to actually collect and then analyze data are quite rudimentary. We have a lot of like device manufacturers and so on, like pushing their individual systems, which makes it very hard for a provider to actually learn like five, 10 different systems to, deli to help deliver care to her yeah. kind of patient base. Very difficult. And the third and maybe most important problem, even if she did the first two, it wouldn't really help because she wouldn't actually get paid for the work yeah. that she was putting in. Yeah, yeah. Right? So what I realized very quickly was, hey, you need to actually solve all of these three problems. Otherwise, there's no chance that this type of great care can exist. And that was a fundamental insight that I had. So that the only way to do this was to start a fully integrated diabetes clinic that actually delivered care to patients, not just deliver the software or, you know, just deliver the, the, the kind of insurance company that, that paid providers or the kind of education, but actually all three in one. So that led me to start like a, uh, as I mentioned, like a fully integrated clinic that has the endocrinologists, trains them, builds the software, and make sure that the providers get paid for the work that they're putting in. Fantastic stuff. And, and what you're talking about is patient-centered care, right? Which is almost the opposite of the way historically healthcare has been delivered, right? 
healthcare has historically been delivered to meet the needs of the doctors and the payers in a sense, right? And so this concept of, well, actually we've got a customer here and that customer is a patient and you know what's important to that patient it's it's what the system is talking about um i'm kind of interested to know where the reality is for for the system you're in and for the business that you're in in, in terms of actually fighting against that right and and you know one of the first things that comes to mind is like the the it sounds like my guess is that the payment side of things is one of the you know the person paying is the person who gets a say in how delivery happens. So like flipping that around and going, well, actually, no, let's listen to the patient and let's, you know, let's kind of get the funding required to deliver the care the patient needs is a is a is an ideal concept. But in reality, how, how's it working out? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the major challenges for sure, kind of trying to figure out, okay, but how do you actually how do you actually solve the third piece? Like how do you actually get paid? And I think there was like two realizations. The first one was that actually the, the, the change to the American healthcare system is happening slowly, but it is happening. So Medicare, which is the largest payer or insurance company in the country, they're run by the government for everyone that is 65 or older. They actually set the rules that are then followed by the more commercial insurance plans. And they have started something called uh, a remote patient monitoring program, which allows providers to deliver care on an ongoing basis without seeing the patient in person. And that means communicating, collecting some, the basically set up as like collecting some kind of data, mm. making some kind of clinical decision, and then communicating that back to the patient. But you can do so, so asynchronously which means over messaging or over video. And that's starting to be adopted by commercial payers as well. But it requires you to think differently about the operational setup of your clinic. If you have based your entire clinic on in-person visits where somebody shows up with their credit card, you pay, you sit down with a doctor and then you leave, then it doesn't work anymore because yeah. here you need to actually charge the patients on an ongoing basis. But since we're a technology company, we're actually really good at that stuff. So we use a payment processor, we collect, we have credit cards on file for all of our patients, so we can actually do that without as much operational overhead. But it requires, and that's just one example, right? So yeah. it just requires a complete rethink of your, the relationship you have with the patient as a clinic, right? It can't be this like, traditional fee-for-service model where you show up, you get care, you pay, you live. Mm. It has to be an ongoing, much more kind of a, think about it more like a, you know, Spotify subscription. Like a subscription right? model for healthcare delivery. Yeah. Exactly. It's healthcare as a service, right? Yeah. Truly. And it requires you to have all of those systems and operations in place. And that's one of the best things about building a clinic from scratch, that you can actually put all of those systems in place from the get-go. I, I love it. I, I think that this, this, it's also fascinating. I'm interested in, there's probably two things that are on my mind. One is like, um, and I'll just ask him before I forget them. One is just around the um, the endocrinologists, the healthcare deliverers in this process and like what managing them and when, you know, when you first engage and put the idea forward and, you know, I'm just interested in the kind of feedback that you got. Yeah. 
So super interesting, right? We go out, talk to endocrinologists about telemedicine, about delivering care completely virtually. Yeah. Every single endocrinologist was like impossible, not even interested, get out of here. The timing's amazing, isn't it? So we actually started by opening a physical clinic. Wow. Yeah. With an endocrinologist? You had, you had yes. an endocrinologist on the team at this point? Yeah, okay. Yeah, but that was the plan. We, we said, hey, we're going to open a small clinic. We're going to deliver care based on data, based on CGM. That was the pitch. And then after running that clinic for about six months, we said, hey, what if we now start to explore telemedicine? It was a lot of uncertainty. And this is just to give you a sense of timing here. That was in October 2019. So we spent a few months researching, making sure, you know, regulatory was okay, legal, making sure all of those things covered. And we launched the fully virtual clinic January 15th this year. Obviously had no idea what the world was going to look like yeah, wow. two months later, right? But that was just, the timing was just incredible. Uh, yeah. um, and now, obviously, everybody's talking about telemedicine. That's kind of the, the future. But we realized that it's kind of crazy that every single endocrinologist in the country rely, up until, you know, pre-COVID at least, rely on a physical space. Because what do you do when you're there as a patient? Nothing. You sit in a chair, you look at a computer screen together, you maybe exchange some papers that could easily be a message or a text message or an email. Yeah. And then you on your way. There yeah. is really very little. They might, um, they might take your weight or they might take your blood pressure. They might do the kind of routine things, which I mean, I think you can get remote monitoring now, right? All that stuff's available and probably plugged into a cloud as well. Yeah, exactly. Or we, the way we think about it, if we actually utilize primary care to do those, like the, oh, yeah. the routine yeah. checkup. Yeah, 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 makes sense. They generally have more availability. They're more closer to where patients live. So it's just like an all around, like better experience for the patient and cuts down cost for mm. delivering the care in the first place. Yeah, so there's efficiency, like an all right? around I mean, kind of win-win. Massive care. efficiency gains, not just in the healthcare dollar, but just in so many other areas of life. And um, I think that it's it's actually hard to talk about the positives of the pandemic because people are suffering, right? And and you don't really, or I certainly don't want to, you know, necessarily dwell on some of the positives because you because of that but but in reality you know this is an example and i think what's going to happen with healthcare delivery through technology and through the fact that we're forced to kind of move in this direction but ultimately it will probably end up with creating a more efficient system which probably delivers better quality care with more patient centeredness to it i mean i think so too when we started talking about telemedicine and we when you know we sat down with our clinical team really looking at like okay this is not a business decision as much as it is a care quality decision mm. you know what would you rather have a quarterly visit for every single patient regardless of where there are where where yeah. they are in the diabetic journey Book, booked or, in at the times is decided by the doctor as opposed to the time that's decided by the year. Exactly. Or do you want to have a connected patient where you have a continuous stream of data 
coming from their arm. So you can turn around and approximate A1C every two weeks. And it was very obvious when you put it down and compare it, that like you would pick the latter, not the former. And that was really the thing that I think propelled us into this kind of, you know, focusing solely on the virtual piece of, 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 of the care delivery. And I agree with you. I think when the dust settles from COVID, I think we will have a bunch of structural changes to the, the kind of overall healthcare system in the US that will largely be positive. Now, there will be probably some downsides as well. And I always get into this with other people in the healthcare space that like telemedicine is like not replacing the in-person visit with a video call. That's not telemedicine. Telemedicine is rethinking the structure of your care model Mm -hmm. to enable patients to get more higher touch care with more kind of like frequent lightweight touch points instead of these kind of like old structured visits that you have that fits your doctor's schedule more than it does the patient. There's a lot of improvements there that I think are happening as a result of the pandemic. And is there a model that you're, or a system that you're kind of using as a reference to kind of go, well, this is the ideal or this is the direction we want to move in? And I kind of asked that knowing that Scandinavia has some, you know, interesting patient-centered care and some pretty good outcomes on safety and quality and efficiency. But I don't know whether that's, whether you're kind of following any models there or other examples of, you know, other kind of companies that have led, you know, led these types of innovations. I think the thing that I was inspired by being from Sweden was not so much around a single payer system or anything like that. Those are very hard structural changes that a small diabetes company probably can't solve. But the thing that I saw I think was fascinating was that in Sweden of type 1 diabetics, 80% have a CGM, 80%. And this was back in 2018. So I asked myself, I was like, wow, 80%. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's because we have a single payer system. So they decide we're going to fund CGM, right? Yeah. And we're going to do it for everybody. So obvious, right? Everybody's going to do it. But that also means that the patients love it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on it in the first place. But what's even more interesting is that they have a national registry of outcomes per clinic and per disease. And that data is public so that they basically, the regulators, they call the bottom 10% of the clinics every year and they say, hey, what are you doing? call the top 10% and ask them what kind of like care model and, and systems that they use to get there. That means that things, technology like CDM that actually works, it gets very high penetration very quickly. And that I think was the, was the kind of one of the things that propelled me into realizing that like CGM is going to be on every diabetic's arm in some kind of future. Because we know it works. Yeah, look, I, I'm loving this conversation. Um, for the sake of time for today, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up with one question, and it's a little bit esoteric, a little bit outside the kind of where we've come from in the conversation so far. But um, I'm curious myself about it, and that is that if I think about countries like Sweden, um, and I think about kind of how they go about 
or how, how you, how Scandinavians go about their day-to-day, -day, the culture that exists in, in those areas, in that area, in Northern Europe. And I think about the result that you talked about, which is 80% have a CGM. I go, well, that's expensive and that's going to cost, that's an investment. It's an investment in the country's people. And it's an investment in going, well, this is long-term thinking. And it's kind of like, it's about what matters to the people living in this country and how do we make everyone healthier and ultimately happier because of that. And so let's invest the resources, the financial and otherwise resources that we have because we care about the people. And that's all that really matters. And I'm kind of curious about how different systems think differently in that, in those more esoteric philosophical type questions where ultimately every dollar that's spent really should be spent to improve healthcare, but isn't really. There's there's so many other sort of complete competing conflicting interests. And I'm sure Sweden's not perfect either, but certainly I think it's on the right end of the spectrum. I'm just kind of curious on your take of, of, of the relevance of culture, the relevance of how countries think about their people, the relevance of how countries invest in healthcare to achieve something. So I, what I'm saying is, you know, Sweden's invested in healthcare, 80% have CGMs because, because Sweden wants their people to be healthier. And then they know that that's going to achieve that end. And it's actually going to ultimately make them more efficient as well, because they'll have less, you know, people in hospitals, they'll have less people using ICU, they'll have less comorbidity and, and so on and so forth. Big kind of broad questions. And I've sort of rambled a lot there, but like, just curious, and this we'll finish off on this. Um, and I'm sorry if I've kind of like put you under the bus with this one, but I'm curious on your take because you sound like you've got a pretty sophisticated understanding of this stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of wrapped up in that, and I, you know, it's 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 a hard it's a hard question to answer. But the thing that comes to mind is, I think the challenges we're seeing in the U.S. it's largely due to misaligned incentives, and I think that's really what a well-designed system has has going for it, that you don't get these issues that we have currently in the US where you know, some insurance companies are all unwilling to take the long-term view or the long-term responsibility for a group of people because they know that in a few years, they're not gonna be a burden for their plan anymore. So it leads to kind of this more short-term thinking and trade-offs that you have to make, which doesn't exist in a system like Sweden. However, I do believe that we are seeing improvements on this. And I believe that's a testament to how revolutionary some technology can actually be, because it's not, not only a long-term improvement, but also a lot of like short-term benefits as well. But to really get to where Sweden's numbers are, I do think it will take a sort of a, a, a deeper look at like, what are the keys, uh, what are sort of the key incentives that are misaligned in, yeah. the, in the American systems? And that, that is a, another, you know, three, four, five hour conversation that, yeah. that, that we can have. Um, yeah, the, the intersection of capitalism and healthcare delivery is not ideal, I think, is, is one of the challenges. And, and a readjustment in terms of like the incentive being the outcome, you know, somehow the incentive being attached to a patient 
and you know their 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 health and welfare generally is um i guess it's idealistic but it's kind of yeah i suppose the direction that that a u.s style system needs to look at but what i'm excited about is actually this movement in the u.s around consumerization of yeah. healthcare, giving yeah. more power to the patients to pick yeah. the provider that they want. Yeah. And that is a huge force. Yeah, that's yeah. a huge force for improved quality and reduced yeah. cost. Man, uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything you want to kind of finish off with with regards to steady in terms of where you're at and where you're heading and anything else that you think that the listeners might be interested in with regards to the steady in the model you've got and what you're doing? Uh, I would just say, like, if you're interested in what we're doing, you can find us on steady.health. We're live in California. And since last week or two weeks ago, also in uh, the state of Washington, where we just launched, we have this amazing new starter program that lets you try uh, the steady care model and get a prescription for two CGMs for five weeks and see what kind of like connected care, which we yeah. call it, looks yeah. like and feels like and how different it can be. We really want to make study into the best and largest endocrinology clinic in the country. So um, if you're in one of these states and want to be kind of early adopter, please join the sort of hundreds of people that have joined already. We're excited to see if you like it. Henrik, man, thank you so much your time definitely wish you well your friends and family and all i suppose northern californians at the moment um, with what's happening over there wish you well with the elections that are coming up you're just generally wishing americans well i suppose at the moment uh, <laughs> thank you for your time and i uh, look forward to following your progress thank you pete like really enjoy this conversation as well uh, and hopefully we get to meet in person someday when yeah flying is uh a little it's bit back more on the than agenda. an option it is today. Yeah, yeah exactly. me too, man. Me too. Awesome. You take care. Have a nice day. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep updated. Also, we love feedback and suggestions, and we love to hear from you. So let us know what you think. We're brought to you by Not Just a Patch, the patch designed to keep your CGM stuck on you. Wishing you the loveliest of days. Goodbye.